0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit providencetx.org. The chairs, if you don't own the scriptures at your home, we'd like to give that to you as a gift so that you can have them at your house. So again, we're going to be reading from Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. Follow along with me. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of God.
1: Good morning. It is good to see each and every one of your faces um, like, uh, like Nathan said, we're going to be concluding our series through the book of Exodus over the last year. Uh, I actually think it's, it's something pretty incredible to celebrate. It's the first time our church has ever done this. Uh, we've gone through, uh, if you remember a while back, we went through the Bible in a year where we covered big, large, uh, themes throughout the entirety of the Bible from uh, Genesis to Revelation from January to December, uh, but this is the first time ever in the history of our church that we've gone through a single book of the Bible in an entire year, so I think that is something really awesome to celebrate, and so we'll be concluding that series today, and then next week, we will start our annual Advent series, which we are calling True and Better, and uh it was not based off of Brendan's song. I promise. There's biblical themes, uh, but uh, I'm sure we will be singing it. So, um, if you if you will, would you would you pray with me as we approach God's word this morning? Father God, we come before you today, and we just ask that you would be with us as we hear your word, hear about your presence, and what that presence does in our lives, and where that presence commissions us to and so god we we ask that where there are areas that we are not obedient or have walked away from you we ask that you would by the power of your spirit prick and convict those god we just ask that you don't allow us to simply walk into this room and and do and check the list check the things on the list that we normally do on a sunday but god meet us here meet us here god in the same way that your presence descended upon the people, would it also descend upon us this morning? So God, let your word uh, be as it always is, powerful and moving and transforming for us this morning. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Several years back, uh, Stanford University School of Medicine and John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health conducted a study uh, where they tested preschool-aged children on their brand and logo recognition uh, they, and it, during the study they came to realize that uh, the power of marketing and advertise, advertisement was greater than they ever imagined because these, these two to six-year-olds didn't even know the names of these companies but they were able to ascribe both the logo and what the product was that they were selling. It's incredible and to no surprise at all, one of the leading ones was McDonald's. Uh, McDonald's was the easiest one uh, for these children to identify. And the researchers, researchers discovered that even if the burger that they gave them didn't come from McDonald's, if the kids were told that it did, it resulted in statistically higher satisfaction than the kids that were told it didn't. It's remarkable because we're talking about two to six-year-olds that have never been instructed on marketing or branding. Uh, They know their brands because the world that they are in is full of them. They know their brands and their logos because the presence of advertisement causes them to swim in it. Everywhere we go, there's something telling us how to feel about the things in our life. McDonald's is not just the only one. Burger King tells us that we can have it our own way. Coca Cola paints the image that if we all have one, there will be perfect harmony in the world. Apple tells us that we have this, when we have this device in our hand, whether it be a MacBook, whether it be an iPad, whether it be an Apple Watch or an iPhone, we will have this incredible life experience that can be captured through the lens of this device. In fact, their mission statement is uh, a bold one, and it's to put a dent in the universe. Facebook tells us that we can have as many relationships as we want, and when we're friends with people on Facebook, we're friends. We're real friends. It creates this illusion of things that don't actually exist. We are shaped by the advertisement of these things so much so that the very presence of these items affect how we feel. We feel like our life has somehow been upgraded with the iPhones that we get every time we get a new one. We feel loved and care about when people interact with our social media posts. It's why the whole, uh, when, when couples would get together and you had the whole like, are they Facebook official thing, That's why that became a trend, because we feel like, well, if we're Facebook official, then we must be real. These things affect us in a way, uh, in this way, because we are swimming in it. However, I don't think it would take long for any of us to, to realize that this longing that we have inside of our hearts that's sometimes filled with these things is nothing but a veneer, they almost always overpromise and underdeliver because nobody in this room actually believes that we will remove strife in the world and strife in our communities and harmony will be in the world if we all had a coke nobody actually believes that it, mainly because coke is one of the it's one of the most widely selling drinks in the world and there's anything but harmony Nobody actually believes that that is the solution to mankind. And if you do, we got larger larger issues to solve this morning. Being a Facebook friend of someone doesn't actually make you closer to them. I, I think we all know that. Maybe that can be supplemental to it. Maybe you're close and then you become a Facebook friend, but being a mere friend of someone doesn't make you close to them. I'm friends with tons of people that I went to high school with that I have not said their name in 15 years. I would dare say I am not close to them. The point is this. The presence of advertisements work because they appeal to deeper longings of the soul that are meant to be found in the presence of God. And we have to be careful and be intentional about whose presence we are choosing to dwell in, to camp out in. In this final portion of Exodus, we will see the culmination of what has been promised from the beginning, God dwelling amongst his people, God's presence amongst his people. And that this presence of God serves as the life source and guide for every move that they make and that we make. This morning, I hope to show you three things. Number one is that we are drawn into the presence of God. Number two, we are shaped by the presence of God. And number three, we are sent from the presence of God. Let's get into it. Exodus chapter 40, verses 33 through 34 says this. We'll back up one verse to verse 33, just so you know. And he erected the court from the tabernacle, he being Moses, and the altar and set up the screen of the gate at the court. So Moses finished the work. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the plan of God, the, the plan that God gave to Moses is now being brought into reality. The people here that we see are finally, finally after 39 chapters are finally obeying God. So what changed? What changed between the golden calf and now, well, we see that in, a, in the chapter preceding in 39 and in 38, that God's spirit is at work. And God's spirit is at work in his people. He's at work in the artisans that are building it. He's at work at the builders that are building it, the people that are worshiping. He's at, he's at work inside of the people of God. And as soon as the tabernacle is complete, what happens? God descends on it. I think there's something to be said about the eagerness of God at which he descends. As soon as it's done, he's there. As soon as it's done, he's dwelling amongst his people. He does not wait. And he doesn't wait because this is the culmination of everything that was promised even before Exodus to Abraham in Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, in Genesis 17, that God was going to be setting apart a people and that he would be their God and they would be his people and he would dwell among them. And as soon as the people walked in obedience and did what the Lord asked of them and didn't create idols for themselves, He descended upon them. This was the restoration of something even prior to to Abraham. It's the restoration of Eden where man walked with God, that the very presence with God was there uninterrupted, perfect, and holy with Adam and Eve as they walked in God's creation. And this was another element of God restoring, Edenizing the world. This leads me to point number one we are drawn into the presence of God. So the eagerness of God is important because it speaks to a larger issue that I, I know is pervasive amongst Christians, and that's that we sometimes we feel unlovable. Now, because of the effects of sin, are we totally depraved well the answer is yes we're totally depraved down to our being i think the bible speaks pretty clearly to that but are we totally depraved yes are we utterly depraved no we're not how could we be we are made in the image and likeness of god to be unlovable is for god to hate the very part of creation made in his image to be unlovable would mean that god would hate the thing that is made like him We are not unlovable. So we need to let this part of our hearts go and lay it at the cross to be crucified with Christ. To feel unlovable is to rob Christ of his purpose of redemption. He took the punishment on the cross and died for you, not to make you lovable, but because you are. You were his people that he set apart. This love that God has for his people is the fuel for his eagerness to draw near to us and draw us to himself. This is where that, that branding, you, you'll see it around the community, the NOTW, not of this world. Uh, it's, a, it's a great company, so I'm not really bashing it. But what I'm saying is is that they get it half right. So yes, we are not of this world, but we're not simply drawn out of sin and drawn out of darkness. We are drawn into the presence of God. You are drawn out of the world into God. God didn't just draw the Israelites out of Egypt. No, he drew them out of Egypt to draw them into him. There's a, there's a dual purpose happening here. And this presence speaks to the deeper longing that advertisements that we see and branding in our world appeal to. You see, we think that a, a new job, a new relationship, or new toy will solve the longing of the soul but once we get them, it never truly meets the mark. And this doesn't mean that creation and jobs and uh, trinkets and things that we do and people, relationships, it doesn't mean that they're not important or they don't have value. Get Listen, creation is good. When God restores the world and creates a new heavens and new earth, it will be like the one we're in now. We can't just look at creation and say, oh, well, because this isn't our home, it doesn't matter anymore. That God's just going to draw us out of the world and we're going to go sit in the clouds and play harps for for the rest of eternity. The Bible doesn't speak to an image like that. When God creates the earth and creates everything in it, he deems it good. This is pre-fall, pre-sin. God didn't make the earth and say, okay, when I create the new heavens and the new earth, it'll be a 2.0 because I kind of made a mistake on this first one. It doesn't work that way. God did not make a mistake. So when God created the earth and everything in it, it was as he designed. It was good. So we ought to look at creation. We ought to look at the things that are in our world as shadows pointing to a greater God. But to allow our affections, which is what advertisement and branding seeks to do, to allow it to terminate on those things is where our hearts miss the mark. The true longing that these advertisements and things point to is the very presence of God that we are missing. The very presence of God that we had in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, that is what our hearts long for. That is what we seek. It is in, the Bible actually says that is, it's in this presence there is true joy. In fact, The Bible says that there's not just true joy, but the fullness of joy. Psalm 16 tells us that in God's presence, there's fullness of joy. In John 15, Jesus says that abiding in him, our joy will be complete. Listen, that's on this side of heaven. That's not a promise for a later time. That's now. That in this world, if you abide in Christ, your joy will be complete. That is an incredible promise. In the midst of a world where depravity seems like it's at its highest, the joy, our joy, can be complete. It's incredible. And I say all this about creation and advertisement and branding because we're coming off of Black Friday and we're going into the Christmas season, and everything is going to be right right at your doorstep. I mean, literally, with Amazon. It's going to be right in front of your face appealing to this longing that it's inside of your heart but really you need to understand that the longing that you feel is the presence of God in Christ that's the longing allow those things to be good things but don't allow them to become God things trying to abide and find that joy anywhere else is as silly as someone believing that coke will bring harmony to the world Because it sounds silly, and it's because it is. And we believe it just in different ways. So what does it mean to be in the presence of the Lord? I think that's a fair question. If we're called to be in it, if there's called to have joy there, what does it mean? Well, we'll try to keep it simple. We, We know that it's not just doing things for God, because Matthew 7, which is, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, all of these things are really great, great items in a vacuum in the Christian world in the church. Those they're great things, but it's not just those things because Jesus looks at them and says, "Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity." So these people doing things for God that didn't have a heart for God. So it's not just doing things; it's not just showing up to gathering, because in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos five, the Lord looks at His people. And they're gathering together religiously for their feasts, feasts that God has traditionally loved, historically loved. But he looks at them in this moment, and he says, I hate your feasts because they don't care about God. They're just boasting themselves, boasting in and of themselves in the feast that they have. And they think that they've garnered some reputation before God that's good because of their feasts but they failed to address the sin that, do, that is inside of them. So it's not just showing up to gathering. I think it's a couple things. It's not just doing things for God. It's not just showing up to gathering. I think it's finding time to allow your affections to be moved and adjusted to hear from and speak to the Lord. I mean, that very, those words are very intentional, Finding designated time to allow your heart affections to be moved and adjusted to hear from and speak to the Lord. For some of you, that means finally answering the when question. The when? When am I going to read my Bible? And when am I going? When am I going to pray? Not just saying like, yeah, I just need to do it. Yeah, I wish I did it more. Oh my gosh. Okay, um, it's December now. January first is coming up. I'll set a New Year's resolution: read the Bible in a year. But the in, in all likelihood, you've done that every year, and then by February, you're done. Not that, but answering the win question. When am I going to do it? Because I, I find that when you actually answer that question, the likelihood of you setting aside in this margin of time for you to adjust your affections to God actually happens. We have to answer that that when question. For others, I I, I think that is... Not just answering the when you're going to read your Bible and when you're going to pray, but it's also um, making the gathering a more intentional part of your life. As in, it's the the church historically was has always meant to be a place that the people orbit around. Where you go to church is where you live. Not you don't live where you work. You live where you go to church. You live where your community is. Historically, that's always been true up until this last century that hasn't been. Historically, the people of God orbited their life around the life in the church. And so for some of us, it's reorienting our life and putting the correct priorities first. Schooling is important. Work is important. All of those things are important and they're good duties for the believer to have. Well, we can't orbit our life around them. So we're called and drawn into the presence of God. God makes a way for us to do that and doesn't just make a way, but God is eager to draw us into to his presence. But he doesn't just draw us in, and this leads me to point number two. He doesn't just draw us into his presence. We are also shaped By the presence of God. Exodus chapter 40, verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So, what happens in this portion of Exodus is both glorious and disheartening, to be honest, especially if you're Moses. So first of all, the the temple is built. The people are obedient. God's spirit and presence descend upon the tent of meeting. But Moses can't enter. The people can't enter. This presence, the presence of God is too holy and too powerful. Not even someone as good as Moses, who has been in the presence of God before at some level, not even he can enter. And it's not just because God was too holy, but also because sin was too great. You see, it's interesting because at the beginning of Exodus, the barrier between the people of God and God himself was not their sin per se, but it was Pharaoh. It was Egypt. And so God hears their cries and draws them out of Egypt. But now it's no longer Pharaoh as the one who's who's putting up the obstacles between God and man. It's their own sin. Their own sin doesn't allow them to enter the presence of God. You see, sin is more than just actions that we do. It is the nature that we have. And the more we see that, the more we will start to understand just how our flesh wants to operate in the world and also how the enemy leverages the world and our flesh to accomplish our own demise. The more that we understand that our hearts are, our sin is not just the things that we do, but our hearts are bent. They, we have iniquity that bend us over to rebel against God. The more that we see that, the more that we will actually walk closer with God. You see, we have said this more times than, than I can even count in this series because it's, it's just such an obvious topic. But God hates Sin. He's not going to allow us, uh, he's not going to allow Moses to just mosey on into his presence. The truth is, is that Moses in that moment was presumptuous and assumed that he could just walk straight in to God's presence and holiness. And that wasn't going to happen. And the truth is, just like Moses, we also at times will lack the reverence for the holiness of God. Because of our vantage point in history, sometimes it makes it more difficult for us to take seriously the call to obedience. God will call us to live a certain way, and whether it's the pressure of man or desires of our own heart, we'll just ignore them. And when we sin and when we fall, we say, it's okay, the cross covers it. And it, it dilutes or nullifies this call to obedience that we have as believers. We're called to walk in faithfulness, to model a life after God, to lay our lives down because Christ laid his down for us. Because of this vantage point in history, we don't take seriously this call to obedience. And so the people of God in this moment weren't going to be able to do anything, and we can't just mosey on into God's presence either. Especially at this point in the text because the appropriate price for sin had not been paid at any level. Sin has a price that has to be paid in order for people to enter the presence of God. And we learn this because we're, not, we're left on a little bit of a cliffhanger here in Exodus because it says that the presence of God descends upon the people and then no one can enter. And so we have to figure out, well, okay, what happens? Well, it's just literally a couple verses later in, in Leviticus. It says this. We learn what's going to be set up as a sacrificial system, so that way the people can enter the presence of God. Leviticus one one through two says this: and the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, "Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock." And so, by the time you get in your Bible reading plan in at in the new year and you start. Going through the Bible in a year, don't I, Leviticus is about the time that people start, you know, taking some deep breaths, worried about moving forward from this point on. Leviticus is the continuation of Exodus; it's a continuation of the story, and so we can't just we can't stop there. You got to understand that in order to really understand Levit, uh, uh, Exodus at its fullest, we need to move forward into Leviticus. But see, here in this moment, there was no system put in place for the people to pay. For their sins. There was no system for atonement. And that was true for them in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we learn that it's something more. It's not just, there's no longer a sacrificial system needed for us to enter into the presence of God. It's no longer necessary for us because Jesus became that on our behalf. Jesus became this the one and only sacrifice that is needed for us to be able to enter into the presence of God. In fact, it's, it's not just something that we're, that we, it's not just something that Jesus does for us, but it's something that we also become because we don't just get to enter the presence of God, but the presence of God enters us. In the New Testament, we are told that We don't enter into a tabernacle or enter into a temple, but because Jesus tabernacled amongst us, now we get to house the very presence of God. So think about how incredible that is. Think about the effort that was taken to build the tabernacle up to this point. How could we ever be the appropriate residence for God's spirit? Well, it's certainly not because of our merits. It's not because we did a good job of building the tabernacle, that's for sure. Moses himself, even with the tabernacle that they built, the obedience that they had, Moses himself couldn't enter it. But this is what Jesus did for us. Jesus paid the, ne- the sacrifice necessary for us, fulfilling the law, making a way for us to commune with God and enter into the presence of God. And while he took that requirement for, uh, from us to pay that penalty, he also gave us his righteousness. In the same way that the tabernacle was cleansed by perfume and incense and sacrificial blood, so the blood of Jesus cleanses us. This comes out of 1 John 1, through 6-7. It says this, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, we... Don't just enter into the presence of God, but we house the presence of God. We aren't just cleaned up to be acceptable; we become a new creation, holy enough to house the very spirit of God. But the spirit doesn't just reside; he shapes and molds us to become more like Jesus. It's uh, I've used this analogy before, but in, in the same way that if if you're just sitting on your couch and somebody that you don't know just opens your door and walks inside your house, you're not just going to be like, hey, what's up, man, and then keep going back to what you were doing. No, you're going to take the appropriate measures to either get that person out of your house or if you do know them, to welcome them. But at the end of the day, if someone walks in your house, there's no way you're just going to allow it to just sit and not do anything. It affects the, inside, the, the internal structure of the house, the internal dynamic of the house. So if, this, so if the spirit of God makes you into a new creation and is housed inside of you, it will start to change things. It will start to shape you and make you more and more and more like God. The spirit will begin to prompt you toward obedience, showing you where to kill the sinful parts and aspects about you. And the more and more that we listen and obey the spirit, the louder that voice becomes. You see, the more that we push that voice down, we push that prompting down, the quieter it becomes, and the less and less we follow, and the less and less we walk in obedience. The Bible says that this is what happens when our consciences get seared, that we no longer hear the voice and spirit of God. But the Spirit will prompt us to follow Jesus and to walk with him and to abide in him and to kill the the sinful parts about us and to do the things that are good. So it's, it's not just repenting of the things that we've committed, but it's also changing our lives to make restitution of the things that we've omitted, things that we just haven't done. That neighbor that you're supposed to reach out to, that you feel the Spirit prompting you to do it, the discipleship that is required of your children that you just haven't done yet. These, the, these things that the Spirit will prompt us to, the more and more we listen to it, the more and more we become like Jesus, and the more and more that voice becomes louder and more obvious. But this shaping and molding that happens inside of us, it's not meant to just terminate on ourselves and make us better people. I think that's an aspect of it, but that's not the whole purpose of it. The whole purpose of the renovation of the soul is not merely so that you would look better. The renovation of the soul is much deeper and meaningful, and it's what makes the church the beautiful, manifold wisdom of God. Because it doesn't just terminate on ourselves, and it leads me to point number three, and this is the final point. So we're drawn into the presence of God. We're shaped by the presence of God. And then lastly, we are sent in the presence of God. Exodus 40, verses 36 through 38. Throughout all of their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from uh, from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all, of their journeys. See in this time tabernacles and temples uh, were not just places that people gathered for worship. They were viewed as micro microcosms of the universe, life systems, control rooms, if you will. as in remember, I was saying historically, the community of whatever was worshiping orbited around their place of worship and that's what this temple and tabernacle served as. So temples of false gods, temples and tabernacles of false religions, they they would be the kind of microcosms or and, and life systems, if you will, control rooms, if you will, of their religion. So other and there are these other religions needed functionaries. They needed people inside of these microcosms in order to appease the gods and feed the gods and do what the gods say so that way they can exist. And when taken care of, they thought that life uh, uh, flowed from it and neglected, chaos would ensue. And so if you look at temples this way, if places of gathering that serve as kind of life systems for the community around them, it's easy to see how societies and social media platforms, sports stadiums and cities become functional temples uh, in our world that house exhausted gods that are served by exhausted functionaries that abide by their rules. But what this means is, is what you, you get resulting straight out of Eden. So right out of Eden, when the presence of God is removed, you have all this uh, all this forward progress with no presence. And that's what you get in, the, uh, in this time with other temples and other tabernacles. Now, I say all this to say because Israel's tabernacle... And later on, Israel's temple was meant to be different. While it was also a life system, a control room, a a microcosm of the universe, God's presence did not need a functionary to take care of him. God did not need someone to leave food at the altar. God did not need people to handle his temple. He did not need people to pick up his stuff and move it for him. God moved on his own. Psalm 115 says that he sits in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. God moves as he desires. Where the presence went, the people of God went. It wasn't the other way around. It wasn't the people of God deciding, hey, this is a good base camp. Let's set up camp here. And then God decided to descend. No, the spirit of God went, the presence of God went, and they followed it. That was it. And whether that was by day or whether that was by night, they followed where the presence went. That is because it's where the presence of God was, it's where life and flourishing and rejuvenation and renovation was. Renewal happened where the presence of God was. So in the the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you see that Renewal, renewal, restoration flowed from the very presence of God. And this means that when we fast forward to the New Testament, we realize that we are now temples of the living God because we have been, we have been made a new creation. We also are sent from that presence, housing the presence to become agents of renewal in the world. It's why Second Corinthians 5 calls us ambassadors for Christ. God's plan for renewal in the world is, it flows from our responsibility to walk in obedience and walk in the light and to shine that light into a dark world. So when it, when it says that we are sent from the presence of God, it means that we house the very presence of God inside of us. And if we walk in obedience All that means is that everything around us will begin to renew, be restored, if we are walking in obedience. If we are walking in the light, that light cannot be overtaken by darkness. That's what the Bible says. So what does this look like? In a world right now that seems more than ever to want to destroy the family unit For most of us in the room, what that looks like is you cultivating the lives of your children, cultivating the wives of, or the the lives of your spouses. If you're a husband, it's investing in spiritually cultivating your wife. If you're a wife, it means that you are loving and serving and cultivating the life of your husband. You're discipling your kids and speaking the gospel truths into them. And listen, I know it's not easy as a father, as a husband myself, and a father myself. It is not easy to want to to lay down your your own desires in order to invest into your family. It's not easy. It's much easier for me to just leave here, go lay on the couch, and take the much needed nap. It's much easier. What's not easy is saying I will sleep later so that way I can invest in the lives of my children, and it's these small little investments that pay dividends in the end. Neglecting to cultivate the family is the it, as the first ministry that we have. Neglecting to do that, it may seem it may seem light and small at first, but you'll pay for it in the end. And so, brothers and sisters. I plead with you that if we're going to be this place of renewal in the world that we live in, it starts at the home. That's where it starts. It'll be difficult, but every single bit of it will be worth it. And then lastly, what does it look like to be sent from the presence of God? It's not just cultivating the home, but it's also having the courage to live a life of obedience in the world that we live in that will constantly face face against you constantly stand against you listening to the spirit and not allowing the fear of man or the fear of others to dictate how you will live we ought to be a people of god's word that is the that is the anchor and submit that which we stand God's word that tells us how to live, that directs how we live. I know a lot of people want to say that not everything's in the Bible. I just genuinely disagree. Yet maybe the the very specific aspects of your life, whether or not you need to live in Spring or live in Conroe, maybe those aren't in the Bible, sure, but larger, um, bigger umbrella principles, every single one of them, everything that we need is in God's word. Everything that we need. And God's word is how we primarily hear from God. So if we're going to be sent from the presence of God to the places that he desires us to go, we ought to be reading our word so that way we can hear from God. It's going to take courage to live in the world that we find ourselves in right now. Fear will come before us and we'll be afraid for our jobs. We'll be afraid for a lot of things in our life. But we can't allow that fear to dictate how we live. That fear cannot cripple our principles. We need to be a resolute people. Not a stubborn people, a resolute people. You, stubborn is, is where it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong, you're, just, you're not moving. Resolute means that you know it's anchored in truth. And that to stand against it would be disobedient. We must be a resolute people that love God and allow God and his word to shape our life and his spirit to lead our life. Where the spirit and presence of God goes, so should we. So I have a couple things to ask you as we close. Do you feel that you are unlovable at all? And if that's you this morning, I want you to know that God is not, on, not only does he love you, but he's eager to love you, and his arms are open wide this morning for you. Do you know that you're a believer and you know that you're lovable, but you're just, but you've kind of stalled in your walking in obedience? Well, not only does the presence and spirit of God give you the power to walk in obedience, Ezekiel thirty-six tells us he that we're given a new heart so that we can obey you need to know that you are not chained anymore. If you are a believer in Christ, you are not chained to the sins. You are not bonded to the sins that you once were. You can say no and you can walk away. Because of the power of the Spirit, you now are able to. So the sins that feel like they just have such a grip on you, just—that just that is an illusion. If you are a believer, there is no sin that has a grip on you. And you can be sure of that. And then lastly, do you struggle with the idea of being sent from the presence of God, of getting outside of your comfortable bubble to be obedient to the world around you? Then I would encourage you with Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus gives the Great Commission and he says he'll be with you to the end of the age. That you're not in this alone. You're not called to go and be missional and uh, evangelistic on your own. And Jesus gives us the Great Commission and then promises to be with us. So brothers, sisters, I would encourage you to consider those questions. Consider what it looks like for you to walk in obedience, for you to dwell in the presence of God and for you to be shaped and molded by that presence. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you today and God, for those of us in the room that that struggle with the idea that because of our sin, because of the things that we've done, we we may just be too far off. God, I pray that you would remind us that that is never the case. God, that you're not—you don't just love us, but you're eager to be with us. That your presence is a sure and safe place for us to be this morning. And God, for those of us that are in need of repentance or need to be shaped by your presence, shaped by your gospel. Can we pray that you would be faithful to show us the areas that we need to repent, show us the areas that we need to turn to you and how to be obedient. God, and for the world around us, help us to be agents of renewal, agents of renewal in our families, agents of renewal in our communities, in our workplace. Help us to do that, God. Your plan A is to use your people to advance the kingdom. And so, God, we just ask that you would help us to be a part. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen.